0: Support for At Length comes from the Office of the President of the University of Washington. In this episode, changing the way we think about gender. Over the last few years, the debate in America over the rights of people of different gender identities has become a key civil rights issue in public policy and economics. Professor Marieka Claywitter is the final speaker in the UW's Equity and Difference series. Her widely published research focuses on income, family savings, and the economic impact of public policy on sexual orientation. Her May 18th lecture, I'm Coming Out, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity in the U.S., looked at the ways acceptance and changes to the laws have affected LGBTQ equality since the 1969 Stonewall Riots. We met at her office at the UW to talk about the social and economic realities for members of the LGBTQ community. How do you think that these debates about who gets to go to the bathroom where resonate with the larger issues that you deal with in in terms of discrimination, gender discrimination, sexual discrimination?
1: Yeah. I think that these debates are really scare tactics. about things that are important, about gender, about gender identity, about how things are changing with respect to gender roles. Um, And I think a lot of it is backlash about the gains that have happened with sexual orientation. For example, the same-sex marriage court cases that now everywhere in the U.S., um, same-sex couples are allowed to marry. And it's kind of part and parcel with what we've seen around Uh, public policies around sexual orientation and gender identity over the last twenty twenty five years that there are advances and there's um... backlash and there's um... forces on all sides operating in different venues so it's in the courts it's in the legislators it's in the the vote of the people and initiatives its um... debate about what equality means, whether it means you're allowed to act on your religious ideas, whether it means that um, everyone should be treated in in a way that they find most respectful, who should be allowed to form different kinds of families. It's just a messy, um, if I were a political scientist, that's I would be all over the politics of it. I'm an economist. So I look at some of the economic aspects, which are also interesting. So people are talking about bathrooms and who's allowed in the bathrooms, but it's getting connected up to um, law, anti-discrimination policies, which have Economic implications, and also again advocacy, which is bringing in large corporations to talk about, um, uh, to ask large corporations to say, "No, we're not going to have our factories or our offices in places that adopt these kinds of policies."
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. You said one. Th- I want There's a few things you said there. I want to unpack. But one thing you said: what? How do you um, formulate the question of r- religious? Acting on your religious interests in the face of laws that seem to go against your religious interests—how do you how do you discuss that? Maybe economically, but also, you know, more broadly.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer <laughs> to that one. I think it's partly—that's um, what our courts are really set up to do in a lot of ways, that um, to try and look at the interests. Of multiple parties, so um, religious groups of various kinds, of in this case sexual minorities, uh, uh, people with um, minority gender identities, um, people um, with minority sexual orientations, to try and protect minority groups from the tyranny of the ty- tyranny of the majority is something that courts have worked hard to do so based on the constitution and then um allowing for laws that protect various rights the way i think about it is very much that i do um want to understand what it means for people with different identities, religious or um, sexual orientations or gender identities, to move through the world together in a way that allows people to live their social and economic lives with, uh, without hiding, without um, being forced um, to not be who they are, and where we can find Laws that protect people's economic activities, protect their um, uh, where they work and live. And as Americans, we've always found those arguments to be compelling to yeah. to protect people's rights to be who they are.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think about it in terms of oh, you know, florist didn't want to serve a gay couple, or or the baker didn't want to make a cake for a gay couple's wedding. So let's say North Carolina has gone to courts against the federal government, against the DOJ, let's say they lose. And um, the federal government says, in facilities, public and private, there needs to be um, an open policy. Are there court rulings now that would say, no, we, we do have precedents, and, and it would go along the lines of, of the things you already described? Courts not, not allowing for gender discrimination in marriage, employment,
1: Courts in the past have weighed the business costs of making changes, accommodations. I mean, that comes up all the time in disability accommodations. Um, certainly that's where courts, probably that set of law would be important here. And um, and there's been varying standards on that. Um, you know, is a little cost okay? How much is too much cost um, for changing infrastructure and facilities to accommodate different people? Um, on the other hand, um, courts also have (laughs) sometimes I think successfully and not successfully tried to parcel out real danger of any kinds of changes or, or, or accommodations. So, um, bathrooms, um, how much... Uh, uh, what is the problem there? As a policy analyst, I would look at that and say, um, we're looking at policies um, to solve a problem um, or not passing policies because they might create a problem. And in my mind, I'm asking how many problems have there been with people uh, with gender identities not matching their birth certificate in restrooms?
0: Probably not caused by the people who have those gender identity issues because as we know those people are passing is the word they're they're transitioning so they're not they're not looking for a fight
1: that's right and i have to say um this is one of the places where issues around gender identity and sexual orientation come together and I'm dating myself this way, but um, uh, when I came out as a lesbian in the 1980s, we lesbians uh, didn't have what I have now, which is longer hair and wearing dresses. And And the group of people I hung out with, um, which were lesbian feminists, we often got mistaken for men in the restrooms, which I did all the time, and asked to leave or got mean stares. And there's many people... Um, who, uh, regardless of what their gender identity is, in women's room might get stared down or or questioned or asked to leave, my partner being one of them. And the question is, is like how dangerous is that? Um, And we certainly have laws about people doing anything violent or um, intrusive in bathrooms.
0: What happens, do you suppose, when... I know I've gone afield from economics, but what happens, yes. do you suppose, when, uh, when school—what uh, is the complaint? What is the fear? Oh, yes, uh, when athletes uh, are, in, are on teams, and they're identifying one way from their gender, and then they're showering together. That's always the fear, right? I don't want my daughter showering with X. Is it um, incumbent upon society to build separate facilities or is it incumbent upon society to find a new way of cataloging identity?
1: I think...
0: Accepting identity.
1: Accepting. I think, oh boy, all of us, I think we have to get ready for change. And I think we're going to have to find new ways of dealing with gender because um, people younger than us are changing the way they do gender and so we're all gonna have to accommodate that and locker rooms and showers and, and even on who's on what team Mm -hmm. out there, I think is going to need to change and who's using what bathrooms. And one way to do it is to have separate showers for people. Um, and I have to say, it seems like there's kind of a move that way anyway, with more kids wanting, um, their own dorm room, their own bathrooms in dorms. Um, and I'm not sure what's driving that. I don't think it's gender identity, but I think it is going to get pushed down um, to other things like uh, high school shower rooms. So, and all kinds of other things. Maybe uh, not have different toy aisles in the stores with pink and blue toys. And there's more and more kids coming out as. Either um, wanting to change their genders, having gender identities that don't match their birth certificates, or not wanting to be in one box or the other, having non-binary genders. And this has always been around, but I think kids are pushing it forward in Uh, a way that has
0: been. Around, but hidden for our eons, eons, right?
1: And many of us hit it and maybe um did it on our weekends and evenings and not at work and now people are pushing to be able to be to perform their gender identity at work and in the open and um i think that's a good thing and i think all of us are going to have to adapt to that
0: uh, one more thing about toilets uh, yeah <laughs> because um you it, it relates back to identity it also relates back to economics and, and discrimination. So I was reading, I was doing a little reading. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from something. For most part, public facilities in Western nations were male only until the Victorian era, which meant women in the West, right? mm-hmm. uh, which meant women had to improvise. If they had to be out and about, they, if they could hold their bladders, or they had devices, or they had those big skirts. And um, that reflected, these, these scientists were saying that reflected, they called it a urinary leash. And it was a way that women were held to the home, and I've and out of the workforce, uh, out of out of public life. I found that to be very fascinating, because it says there's no public place for you, so there's no place for you to go but to be, to be in your house, and that's that's how we organized our. I mean, that's a basic need that organized our culture, our society for years, and it's still. I mean, India. Yes still happening in India, for example. They, these guys write about that.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that history of that. I, I didn't That's either. interesting.
0: The, the first gender-segregated restrooms were a major step forward for women. Massachusetts passed the law in 1887 requiring workplaces that employed women to have restrooms for them. And then Victorian-era Americans were segregated by gender in many spaces. We know that, right? Waiting rooms and all sorts of things. So it's, it's, in a sense, it's an interesting it's, it, to look at the evolution in terms of equality. Now we have ended up at bathrooms.
1: It is interesting, and I, I just have to point out, I mean, there's still a lack of facilities in many developing countries. Um, that's one of the issues they say about girls going to schools in developing countries, um, not having facilities there to use, especially around menstruation. Yeah. Um, and I, just as a woman, I want to point out that um, we don't have enough stalls for women in many places. You see big lines of women waiting at well, the this, bathrooms.
0: It reminds me, this, this complaint reminds me of the ADA complaints when those laws were first being passed because what have we gotten but better bathrooms, right? Bigger stalls, more stalls, um, public facilities and in and, and, uh, national forests, for example, are, are bigger Accommodate somebody in a wheelchair also makes it easy for somebody to go up a ramp when you're older. So really the, the opportunity, the economic opportunity yes. seems boundless.
1: Or people with children in strollers or right. having places for them to use the facilities yeah. as well. Reminds me that
0: there was a TV show in the 90s called, All- or maybe it was the aughts, Ally McBeal. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that show. It was a very odd show about lawyers. But they had gender neutral bathrooms. And everybody yes. went to the same bathroom, but everybody had their own stalls.
1: As long as we have enough bathrooms. Right, (laughs) right.
0: Yeah, don't go to a baseball game if you're a woman, right? Right. I mean, there's just not enough facilities. Um, Do you, is there, when you step back from it, is what we've seen, I know you've studied this, so the fear of marriage equality, the fear of bathroom equality, um, have you, is there a way to look at the economic impact of, of those fears or, yeah, of those fears?
1: Well, there's two pieces there. One is that um, I do think a lot of those fears are about gender and not about sexual orientation or gender identity per se. They're not about the minority status. And I think that campaigns um, trying to prevent progress of rights by sexual orientation and gender identity minorities are using the gender fears there about you know women and girls in bathrooms and all that there are definitely economic implications for um, discrimination by sexual orientation and gender identity we have the best data and uh, now quite a large literature on um, the economic um, implications of being gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer, of being a, a sexual minority. We ha- the data just are not as good about um, trans people, transgender people, and the employment implications or broader economic implications. And part of that is we've been able to use census data about same-sex couples as a proxy For um, sexual orientation discrimination, but we don't have gender identity questions yet on any major surveys. So there's been some big surveys, but they weren't population based yet about gender identity.
0: Yeah, I know you've been studying that. You were part of you did a big meta-analysis, right?
1: I did about sexual orientation.
0: And and what were your conclusions?
1: and and this is where as an academic <laughs> i can have uh uh conclusions on the that, one hand on the other hand uh, that aren't so good on the advocacy <laughs> uh piece and that uh, what i found was that there's very solid evidence from this meta-analysis of all the studies about 30 studies that had been done at the time i looked at the studies um uh, that gay men earn significantly less than other heterosexual men in in the u s. labor force and and also in other developed countries. Um, on the flip side, I found that lesbians earn more on average than heterosexual women.
0: Yeah, and you said one of the reasons might be because men are still doing the hiring and so a different kind of discrimination takes place. Is that accurate?
1: Um, That we know a lot about hiring processes and some of this literature comes from um, studies about race and gender um, that show that Um, all the implicit bias kinds of studies that show that that gets played out in in the workplace, in the hiring, in promotion, in pay levels. So we know some of that um, process through there. Um, there's other pieces though, um, of the, the difference, why we might see differences for gay men that we do see, um, evidence of lower earnings for them and not for women that are more related to gender. Um, and this is where my line is always that I think gender kind of trumps sexual orientation when it comes to looking at both economic impacts and, and even some of the social
0: impacts. What's happening to gay men?
1: Well, uh, gay men are partnered with another man and you have two male size Earnings in their households, and what that means is that no one has to be the primary breadwinner in this to the same degree. Whereas lesbians are partnering with another woman, and on average, women earn less um, than than do men. And so, when you look at the household incomes for same-sex couples compared to different-sex couples, what you see is that gay men and heterosexual married couples earn a about the same once you pair up two gay men's higher earnings with uh, a man and a woman in a married heterosexual couple. Lesbians earn significantly less than that and have much higher poverty levels for their households than do uh, the gay male couples or the married couples.
0: Really? Married does, that, does that go up the uh, economic ladder? So you, you're in a partnership? Are you married?
1: Uh, we're not married not,
0: right so you're in a partnership um, do you see that playing out in your your economic reality
1: um, I would say uh, uh, m- my partner and I are very lucky to have um, very high quality jobs
0: so at some level it's gonna there'll be different the effects will be lessened because of the level you're operating at.
1: So we're looking at across the income distribution, um, uh so uh, we're looking, you know, so again, there are lesbians who earn a lot, and uh, this is back to the economic I- and um, earnings inequality we see in the U.S. If you have any two people who have high earning jobs um, together, they earn more. And I have to say, uh, this was one of my papers was a, a while ago was about this, is that high earning people tend to, uh, to meet up and, and create couples with each other, so this uh, figures into household income inequality that's even greater than individual earnings inequality.
0: Isn't that? I mean, that makes eminent sense, doesn't it? We move in we move in similar circles, and so then that's why higher income people and. They all enjoy the benefits of being higher income.
1: And they meet in college. They meet in graduate school. They meet in business school. Um, Maybe they have similar values about spending their time at work. Um, Whereas, you know, people who aren't in college um, also run in similar. I mean, that's class, right? That's class. That's class, yeah.
0: You also did you did so a study the uh, that was titled The Effects of State and Local Anti-Discrimination Policies for Sexual Orientation. The results show no evidence of a direct effect of anti-discrimination policies on average earnings or income for members of same-sex couples. That
1: I have an update to that. Oh, good. I do have an update to that. And um, so this is kind of the evolution of even data and analysis in this area. I first did that. um, That first paper was in the mid-90s and trying to look at the effects of anti-discrimination policies then. And I went back and tried, I think it was last year, and I found that there was just, there was, Only a handful of states and maybe 50 cities at that point who had those policies, and I was trying to look at people who lived there, and and gays, people in same-sex couples from this the. 1990 census because that was the first year we could look at same-sex couples in the census and tried to look and see what their earnings were and how those differed from similar people in places that did not have the policies and I didn't find any effect. I redid that with the 2000 2000, yeah, I think the 2000 or 2010 census, I'm forgetting, sorry. Um, And by that time, there were a couple of hundred cities and many more states that had anti-discrimination policies um, and more people reporting their same-sex relationships on the census. And in that analysis, I found that it did look like state-level policies had an impact on earnings for gay men Especially gay white men working in the private sector. Now, certainly, gay men were the people, remember, who had lower earnings, and lesbians had higher earnings. Um, and and in the private sector is where you'd expect these uh, laws to have an impact. So the private sector made sense. Um, It was hard, I did not find consistent results among men of color. Um, Part of that, again, might be the small numbers. Um, Once you slice it down to um, looking, for example, at African-American men in places that have the public policies compared to not having the public policies, and men in same-sex couples in those areas, then it makes it harder to find the effects, as statisticians would call that power is very low. (laughs) <laughs> but this gets back to why don't we see the same results for gay men and for lesbians? And part of it might be there is evidence that there's more discrimination against gay men than there is against lesbians. Um, that just people have stronger reactions. The piece you mentioned about if heterosexual men are the hiring um, people, then they also have stronger reactions against gay men than they do against lesbians. Um, and um, Than the intra-household piece that I was mentoring, um, that people may actually adjust their hours and weeks of work um, depending on who their partner is and how much overall income they have in their household. I see.
0: It's so, it's so many factors to pull together, right?
1: We're complicated people. Yeah. We live in relationships and in social settings, so unpacking it. Yeah,
0: you said state, but not what? Not necessarily local. Not
1: local. We didn't. I didn't find didn't evidence of really? the local ordinances Is it because again, impact?
0: it's too hard to? I mean, because the, the set is so, so small. Or?
1: No, there are many, many cities that have ordinances. In very large cities, you can imagine. You know, New York City, Seattle, L.A., San Francisco. Um, I think maybe there um, the mechanisms are not as strong for enforcement at the local level. There's even early work by some political scientists showed that some smaller cities had no enforcement mechanisms.
0: So the law's on the books, but it doesn't matter.
1: That's right. It doesn't. It, there's no way to really use them. I have to say, I think the biggest effects of many of these laws also are that they create a salience around discrimination. This was especially important in the 80s, where the idea of, of treating, you know, quote unquote homosexuals differently, it wasn't seen as discrimination. It wasn't defined as discrimination, and adopting these laws created that salience and that's where one of the um, analytical issues comes in. If issues become salient across boundaries of places with laws and no laws, we not the effects of the laws might spill over in a way that means we couldn't isolate them by looking at people living in one place in comparison to another.
0: I see, I see. You know, you also there was something you, you just on that note. You I think it was an actually was a recent article about. Discrimination laws, marriage. They was looking at marriage, and you were quoted, Inc. Inc. Magazine. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Um, laws that allow discrimination. Discrimination. There, there, and there were many in the '90s, right, that you're talking about that that were passed that that had that allowed discrimination. States were passing them to say, oh, you know, defensive marriage laws. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and the other ones. Um, I guess it's the flip side of what you were saying. When this idea is out, it advocates for. Religious freedom. The quote was, but you were you were saying it advocates for discrimination in a sense. Is that right? Is that how, is that how you meant it? That these laws, when when defensive marriage act comes out, when these gen, the North Carolina law, the Texas law, it actually is a way of sending a message that discrimination is okay, and here's your rationale for it.
1: From my perspective, yes, that what these are So the ideas. other laws work that way. That's right. Mm-hmm. I think that the idea that marriage needs to be defended uh, from homosexuals or same-sex couples is very problematic. Again, I would go as an analyst. I would say, what is the evidence that heterosexual marriage was somehow degraded by allowing people in same-sex couples to marry? But in the political arena, bringing out ideas around freedom, around religious freedom, around, um, or on the other side of it, around the freedom to be employed, the freedom from discrimination. These are all big concepts up there that are so important to Americans mm-hmm. that the advocacy organizations are, are invoking them and trying to create feelings and people in order to push forward on both sides, push forward their agenda about not having anti-discrimination laws. That was the case in Houston and also in Mississippi and in North Carolina. They're linking the big issues around fear in the bathrooms and protecting women and girls and protecting people (laughs) in bathrooms. They're linking that to provisions that are disallowing local governments from passing those anti-discrimination policies.
0: Right. We're seeing that play out in this election. It's Donald Trump is a perfect example of taking those fears and turning them into uh, a way of uh, energizing a group that wants to push back on those, those anti-discrimination laws. That's right. Anti-immigration laws.
1: Well, right. I mean, and people we all know we're we're a cesspool of implicit bias all of us are and it, it's not hard to tap into that and try and make people feel good and as part of a group who are against fill in the blank people in other countries or you know gender minorities or sexual orientation minorities I
0: think you just gave me the title tapping into our cesspool of implicit biases <laughs> Election 2016. Oh, oh. <laughs> Even listening to the rhetoric of, of Trump and listening to uh, what his supporters say, that's the core of it. This is not economics then. This is then pandering to fears, people giving into their cesspool of, of yeah. prejudices uh, rather than trying to figure out ways to to build towards something that helps everyone. Uh, but that's but, that's politics.
1: But the economics very much comes into it. Um, in a way that just hit me on the head the other day, is looking at who the Trump supporters are, you can map that back to um, a big hollowing out of manufacturing jobs and people who thought they they were, and, and here the gender comes in, men who thought, you know, people like me, we find good, well-paying, um, blue-collar jobs, or lower-level, white-collar jobs, and we have steady employment, and we provide for our families, and that's a male thing to do. And now, we don't have those jobs in the same way we do, and we haven't, b- that, that feeling that people like me get those jobs, and And so I need to worry about other people having those jobs that I should have.
0: And also that I'm not uh, interested in, willing to accept the argument that uh, those jobs moved overseas, but it raised millions and millions of people out of poverty across the world. And that is also, that's a plus too. and the argument for you is you have these other opportunities, you unemployed person, you have these other opportunities in America. Pursue those and we will help. That has not been like that 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 grand idea has not been a, a popular idea with a lot of those folks. It's
1: hard again Me kind or of- them nationalism and valuing the outcomes for people within the U.S. versus people outside of the U.S., that's still one of those very strong, strong identities that we have and that we draw on to be unified and work together. I mean, that's what a lot of this is. It's like when... When we feel secure, when we feel like we can support ourselves and our families and that people like us are valued and secure in what we need in our communities, it's easy to feel like we should be giving aid to other countries. We should be um, supporting other people in other kinds of communities within the U.S. um, that we should be giving to low-income families. But when people feel insecure about their lives and their ability to support themselves, I think it's it's very hard for them to feel generous.
0: But can you advocate economically, and can you advocate that? Because this is what Hillary and this is what Obama have done. They're advocating that these issues are separate from politics. It's about economics, it's about you know marginal costs and where you can where you can pay your lowest amount of dollar to a to a wage earner but that policies can help government can help policies can help and part of the problem with the republicans right is that they've undercut that argument government is bad so they've they they don't seem to offer other than walls other than tariffs they don't seem to offer those folks um options Uh, unless you believe that you could economically throw up tariffs and, you know, stop trade and and uh, be a more insular country.
1: I think there's a lot of evidence that that doesn't work well, <clears throat> that that's not a good strategy going forward for the U.S. or for other countries as well. Um, it is. It's this dilemma. It's like, is all government bad or what are the best uses of government and what are the most effective policies? One of the movements that I hope could get People from multiple parties on board is really using data and analysis to to choose the most cost-effective strategies, and um, both on that basis and because of where my heart is, I think things like investment in education, in quality vocational education, quality education. Moving people from fr- through high school and into careers is is an important investment that we should all get behind. Why
0: doesn't it, why doesn't it work? The data uh, persuades because you're in a you know you're in a discipline where there is a whole spectrum of political opinion, right? Uh, in in, yes. in economics, is there enough data without bias that policymakers should be able to make informed decisions?
1: Oh, if policymakers would just look at the data, really. Um, sometimes, sometimes there are good data. I mean, would the
0: Milton Friedman School of Economics have a different, different data set?
1: Oh, well, certainly I would never argue that data and analysis is without bias. That's no, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, I think there are some things that more analysis would be, um, helpful for policymakers to look at and of course there's so many forces at play on politicians and in legislative processes and some of which we've already talked about yeah. um, but for example going back to bathrooms, what is the evidence about there being a problem with men in women's bathrooms? We don't have, we don't currently have laws that say that people have to um, use the bathroom on their birth certificate. Is there evidence that we need those laws? And I think there is not.
0: It's like voting rights laws, right? Voting access laws, right? What's been the evidence of voter fraud to, to give us all these laws about voter ID?
1: Uh, th- th- right, how much fraud has there been, and was it, it uh, what was it connected to um, and but evidence also about how many people are voting has to come in there, and how that 's changing as different requirements for voters go into place i mean this is these are the tools of policy analysis that um, are important, and uh, when we 're teaching students about this, of course there's this, there's this whole continuum between advocacy and analysis, right? And so you'll see different um, think tanks or advocacy organizations who are doing something that's some combination of advocacy and analysis. And we have to teach our students and we all should pay attention to the source of data, the analysis, and how they did it in order to make sense of how, whether it's biased or in what ways it's biased it's probably the best way to say that yeah
0: you reminded me of a Stephen Colbert joke when he was in the Colbert Report that everyone knows that facts have a liberal bias
1: <laughs> that's right
0: so just I'll complete the circle when you look at uh, the history of, of the changes in in gender and equity ideas uh, I, I believe uh, the description of the lecture talked about Stonewall you know when Stonewall occurred and then Stonewall on Um, where, where are we in America? Maybe the Western world, but where are we along that continuum? How do you feel about where we are along the continuum? Maybe that's a better way.
1: There's been so much change. There's so much change. Um, when Stonewall happened, um, most states had sodomy laws that, um, either outlawed all kinds of, sex acts or it just said that sex between people of the same sex was an abomination or, um, or they were enforced in ways that only targeted gays or lesbians or, or people with minority sexual identities. And they were very much used to not allow people to, um, appear in public, be in public bars, um, Um, or even have relationships um, because they would be thrown out of their government jobs, for example. Um, Now, um, and even in 1986, there was Bowers v. Hardwick was a Supreme Court decision that said we did not have the right to have sex with another person of the same uh, sex or gender um, in the privacy of our own homes. And that was overturned by 2003. Um, And so now all those sodomy laws are gone. Um, They're not, we have the right (laughs) to have our own lives in the privacy of our homes. Um, We have the right to marry who we want. And that's both important for um, uh, gays and lesbians, bisexuals, but also for trans people because um, there were, uh, again, the enforcement of those uh, um, marriage laws meant that people would, um, for example, B, denied the estate of their legally, the person they married when they were a different sex and then when they changed their sex or gender, they wouldn't be allowed um, to inherit from their married partner um, based on the marriage laws. So there's been so much change. And as I said, the youth behind us are even pushing us. They don't even, they don't even like the words we use, gay or lesbian. They want to be queer or something else. And, and, or they don't want to be in a box. And the same thing with gender. There's so much change. In my generation, people did not come out in high school. They did not come out in high school because they might not have survived for all kinds of reasons. And now it happens all the time, not everywhere. There's certainly um, geographic variation, but um, both people come out as being gender identity minorities or being uh, sexual orientation minorities, and, and they see it as a different world.
0: There's still some laws in the books, right? Especially about employment discrimination. Um, are those falling as as you look and assess what's happening? Are those falling in part because, as you mentioned, of the pressure from international companies and global companies that are saying, it's not how we want to operate?
1: Or we can't, and here's the economic impact. We can't recruit people to come work for us in North Carolina because we don't have an anti-discrimination policy and you do have these bathroom laws and People don't want to work for a company in a place where they don't feel safe and secure, or it sets out a, a vibe um, that it's not a it's it's not a thriving um, secure place.
0: Right, right. And this this huge cohort, this millennial generation, which is the biggest cohort now as you say they have a different view
1: right and just to put this out there there is no federal law that um bans discrimination in employment on the basis of sexual orientation gender identity is funny it's kind of leapfrog because now they're using laws about sex discrimination and there's been some success in using those in gender identity for gender identity minorities Hmm. Those generally haven't worked in sexual orientation to protect people of sexual orientation minorities. So
0: that's a lack. That's a lack in the those parts of the laws
1: that's right and that's why the state and local laws are so important in this area in, in employment discrimination mm-hmm. and in education of them enforcement of them, <laughs> enforcement of yeah. them. Um, and they do see they are used by um, sexual orientation minorities at least um, uh, at the same rates as for race and sex yeah. and just one other thing these laws are in place and they've almost always been put in place just tacking it on to the infrastructure that was there for race and sex so they just added sexual orientation Orientation or gender identity on the end of it. So that it's really building on that foundation. One of the things that's been so important to me and to creating the evidence, even if the politicians don't always use it, is the availability of data and and the ability to publish articles on things like sexual orientation and gender identity. And again, in the last 20 years, that's changed incredibly that now there are most academic journals will publish on sexual orientation and gender identity and their data like in the census data and a growing number of surveys
0: I mean they're not these are the the accepted I'll use the phrase mainstream peer-reviewed journals that that are that are accepting this as valid and important now work. they are
1: in a way that they weren't that was really hard to get in 20 years ago
0: is that right? Yeah. You can remember that?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first article that I wrote, and I had, I think, in economics, the second article um, on sexual orientation issues, and the economics of sexual orientation issues, and I'm not sure what happened with the first one, as her process, but for me, I think I had to revise my article four times and had a lot of serious questions and also comments like, this is an important topic, Um Uh, This is a small minority. Why would we publish about this? Um, And so now I think journals, I review a lot of these articles. There are many, many people also publishing as assistant professors, publishing as graduate students, writing dissertations on this. Both There are data there, but they also know that they will be allowed to get degrees and and, uh, tenure based on on this kind of research.
0: I interrupted you earlier. You were going to say something about education, its importance. So not just education, but the educational institutions have become more educated.
1: That's right. And the funny thing is, um, certainly higher education institutions have always been more friendly to minorities, I think, of all kinds than other institutions. And what we found is that for... um, Uh, gays and lesbians, that they were more likely to have um, higher education degrees and stay longer in school than other people, and probably because it was Hmm. a, a more friendly place laws covering discrimination in education and also in housing. Here in Seattle, we saw some of the housing audits, which are an important kind of study to look at discrimination. Um, I think it was last fall, they were looking at um, race and gender identity and sexual orientation, as well as having some things like source of income um, or um, having children, I think, were another thing, that they were finding bias among landlords in renting to people.
0: Yeah, the importance of data. Yes. And it's liberal bias. <laughs> the liberal bias of facts. <laughs> well, um
1: the same data have been used by more uh, people with a different political position at least in the area of sexual orientation.
0: Oh, I was yeah, I was just joking. But what, just what what was that?
1: Well, I think early on um uh certainly in sexual orientation this issue about whether lesbians earn more on average, um I think there were some more uh, people arguing that there wasn't uh, labor market discrimination because lesbians on average earn more than um, uh, married heterosexual women.
0: Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So you had to come back with other data that showed where that was wrong.
1: So things like these audit studies um, for lesbians or even reports of employers show that they were willing to discriminate against lesbians the audit studies are sending out resumes um, of that are m- identical except for something like which student group they were involved with with a, the lesbian liberation organization or was it save the animals and see who gets callbacks and the lesbians are less likely to get callbacks than than other people
0: how interesting puppies Wales,
1: yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, I I was just making up that. That's result. a good one. I'm sure
0: you're right. <laughs> yes, um, it's a pretty exciting field, huh? Actually, this academic field because it's the core of our of our changing culture.
1: It there's been so many changes. It's so it's so fun to see. And as I'm an economist, but I've gotten uh, kind of a, a a view of all the politics of this as it goes along, um, which is as interesting as the economics. The next piece is gender identity and trans people because there haven't been the data there. Um, it's just getting started. Both the laws have developed, and I think there's going to be, um, and this use of, of sex discrimination to protect um, people of, of gender identity minority status I think is a really interesting and exciting new place.
0: Hmm. Professor Marietta okay, Claywitter, thank you. I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, thank you. Professor Marieka Claywitter was the final speaker for the Equity and Difference series at the UW. You can hear all the interviews from this lecture series and previous series by searching for "At Length" with Steve Scher. Thank you for listening. Support for At Length comes from the Office of the President of the University of Washington.